0: Hey everyone, it's Evelyn and welcome back to the podcast and we are currently reading The Surrender Experiment, My Journey into Life's Perfection by Michael A. Singer, who I absolutely love at this point. I've been reading his books on the podcast for a while now and uh, we're embarking on chapter 11 today. Get Thee to a Monastery. I moved into my new house in November 1971. I remember it was November because just before I moved in, my sister, Carrie, and her husband came up from Miami to visit me for Thanksgiving. This was very brave of them considering they were regular folk. Harvey was a successful accountant and he and Carrie were used to a nice house and comfortable living conditions. When they showed up, I was busy finishing the final checklist before moving out of my van and into the house. Harvey helped me install the last two windows and then insisted on having Thanksgiving dinner with me. That meant they joined me sitting outside on the rocks and cooking what we could on an open fire. Personally, I think that they had come up to check on me to see if I was still halfway sane. I had been without a phone number for a long time, and I'm sure my family must have been concerned about me. Once Carrie and Harvey left, I was glad to be alone again with my beautiful new house. All I had wanted was a simple place to fully focus on my meditations. What I got was a gift from the invisible hand that had taken over my life. That's what I called it back then, the invisible hand. From the beginning of my awakening, I had inwardly begged for help in knowing who I was, the one who was watching the voice of the mind. From that point forward, it was as though something had reached down and grabbed me by the ponytail and begun to pull me up. My whole outer life had been ripped away from me in the blink of an eye. In its place, I had been shown the beauty and peace of interstate that was beyond anything I had ever imagined. The touch of the beyond had lit my heart aflame. I had a fire burning in the pit of my being that never left me alone, even for a moment. It was like a beckoning, a calling to come home. At that stage of my awakening, the only way I knew how to get back was to willfully push my way through, my, through myself with the intense discipline of Zen meditation. As I sat at the threshold of the door that opened into the beautiful place that life had given me to do this work, I reverently bowed my head. This was my temple, my monastery, and I vowed to use it well. I was very surprised to find that the monastic lifestyle came quite naturally to me, I awoke every morning at 3 a.m. and sat for a few hours meditation. I'd do that and then do contemplative walking out in the fields. In those early days, I was still holding on to the concept that it was all about concentration and focus. When I walked, I'd become acutely aware of every step that I took and every movement of my body. This helped to prolong the peace that I felt from my morning meditations. I would then do yoga postures outside until it was time for my noon meditation. I held the rope of self-discipline very tightly every day. It was an extremely strict lifestyle, very different from anything that I'd ever experienced. But just as an athlete is willing to give up everything every day and night to train for the Olympics, so I was willing to give up everything every moment to drop the part of me that was holding me back from where I so desperately wanted to go. It didn't take long before I noticed that food had a major effect on my practices. The less I ate, the easier it was to fall into a meditative state. So I tested the limits of how far I could go without eating. The balance I reached was to eat a small dinner salad every other day and fast in between. My intention was to give up everything possible that pulled my attention outward. This would allow me to fully focus on the deeper inner states. My nighttime routine began at sunset. Somehow the setting sun strongly affected the force that pulled me into the meditation. I was always on my meditation pillow before the sun started setting. After a few hours of meditation, I would make my way upstairs to go to sleep. I had no alarm clock. I awoke naturally at 3 a.m. every morning to start the regimen again. I don't know where I got the idea that if I held the rope tight enough, my lower self would go away and leave me alone, but that's how I lived for about a year and a half. Part of me that had dominated my entire previous way of life had no place in my new life. There were no perks for him, and every day he fought back less and less. The noisy, demanding, personal part of me didn't go away. He just began to resign himself to the intense discipline. I thought it was working, but I would soon come to see that I was very wrong. Chapter 12. When the disciple is ready, the master appears. Other than for schoolwork, reading books had never played a major role in my life. But just as three pillars of Zen had showed up exactly when I was ready for it, so another book had found its way to me just before i moved into my house it was given to me by bob merrill a friend of mine who like me was very much into yoga and meditation one day while i was still living in my van bob gave me the book called the autobiography of yogi by paramanhansa yogananda a holy man from india i remember trying to start this book the evening bob had given it to me but After a few pages, I had to put it down, not because I didn't like it, but because each word I read kept drawing me into such a deep, meditative state that I couldn't continue reading. I tried again the next night. The same thing happened. I didn't understand what was going on, but I was certainly intrigued by the experience. I decided to pack the book away until I moved into my new house. Now that I'd moved into the house and started my intense, meditative lifestyle— it was time to read this mysterious book. Chapter after chapter transported me into a world that should have been very foreign to me, but because of the transformative transformative events that had been happening to me, I could at least relate to the Indian saint's life story. It became clear to me that I had merely... St- duck my toe into the ocean yogananda was swimming in he was a master of the entire field of knowledge and experience i was seeking i could feel it to the core of my being yogananda had gone far beyond my beyond had ever fully had ever and never fully came back he had learned to exist in that state yet still be present interacting with the world i had found my teacher even though I felt an immediate sense of relief that I was no longer alone on my inner journey, some areas of tension had to be worked out. To begin with, the word God was not part of my everyday vocabulary. Yogananda only, not only used the word as freely as his breath flowed, but he used it with a sense of intense devotion that took your breath away. Yogananda's passion showed me most in the songs that he wrote. My heart's a flame, my soul's a fire just for you. 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 Just you. Interestingly, I could relate to that. Since I had touched that mutation place deep inside of me, my heart was aflame too. In fact, I had lost interest in everything else. I only wanted to meditate my way back beyond myself. I could relate to God as associated with that place hidden deep inside of me. My study of Zen taught me that Buddha passed through absolute stillness and peace on his way into nirvana. I had heard that Christ said, the kingdom is within you. And I was aware that the Bible talked about a place beyond all understanding. I knew about such a place inside of me where the peace was so deep that it had completely transformed my entire life. Another word that I couldn't relate to at first was spirit. I thought this was a Christian word, yet Yogananda used it all the time. He spoke of invoking the spirit and feeling it pulsate through him. He related times when he held up his hands and felt spirit move into and out of them. Could he be referring to that powerful flow of energy I had been experiencing since my very deep meditation? I often felt that field of energy flow from one point between my eyebrows, down my arms, and out the center of my palms. Could spirit be another word for this inner energy flow that could be the focal point between my eyebrows and it be the location of what Yogananda kept calling the third eye or the spiritual eye? More and more I began to realize that I could personally relate to Yogananda's teachings. Autobiography of Yogi changed my view about everything that had been happening to me. Once I finished reading that book, God was no longer just a word to me. It represented where I wanted to go. I had begun this journey by wanting to know who I was and who was watching the mental voice. I now realized the great saints and masters of all religious traditions had gone beyond their personal self to find their spiritual self. Yogananda called it self-realization. What a perfect term. For all I was about at that point in my life I wanted to realize the nature of the one who watches My true innermost self Bob Merrill had told me That he received lessons from Self-Realization Fellowship The organization Yogananda had founded in America Yogananda had left the body in 1952 But he had been kind enough to leave his teachings behind In the form of weekly lessons I had heard of a mail-order bride, but a never mail-order guru. I signed up for the lessons immediately and integrated them into my regular practices. I remember that around that time, I decided to read the Bible. I had never read the New Testament before. I found it very inspiring, and so much of the teachings were completely aligned with what I had been experiencing in meditation. For example, there was the notion that you have to die to be reborn, and that's exactly what I've been trying to do. Die of the personal to be reborn in the spiritual. I put pictures of Christ and Yogananda on the altar where I meditated. Some very great beings had walked this path before me. I wanted to learn from them. I was just starting to realize that I couldn't walk the path alone, and I needed some help. Section 2, Chapter 13, The Great Experiment Begins, The Experiment of a Lifetime. Thus far, my entire path to inner freedom was focused around my meditations. That was where I went to become filled with a deep sense of peace and serenity. And it was working, to a degree. I could sit for hours with a beautiful flow of energy lifting me upward, but I couldn't break through to where I longed to go. Furthermore, the personal mind always returned once I got up and became active. I needed help, and it came one day in a flash of realization. It dawned on me that perhaps I'd been going about this in the wrong way. Instead of trying to free myself by constantly quieting the mind, perhaps I should be asking why the mind is so active. What is the motivation behind all the mental chatter? If that motivation were to be removed, the struggle would be over. This realization opened a door for an entirely new and exciting dimension to my practices, As I explored it inwardly, the first thing that I noticed was that most of my mental activity revolved around my likes and dislikes. If my mind had a preference toward or against something, it actively talked about it. I could see that it was these mental preferences that were creating much of the ongoing dialogue about how to control everything in my life. In a bold attempt to free myself from all of that, I decided just to stop listening to all the chatter about my personal preferences and instead start the willful practice of accepting what the flow of life was presenting me. Perhaps this change in focus would quiet things down inside. I started this new practice with something very simple. The weather. Could it be so hard just to let it rain when it rains and be sunny when it's sunny without complaining about it? Apparently... The mind can't do it. Why did it have to rain today? It always rains when I don't want it to. And it had all week to rain. It's just not fair. I simply replaced all that meaningless noise with look how beautiful. It's raining. I found these practices of acceptance very powerful and they definitely served to quiet the mind. So, I decided to push the envelope and broaden the range of events I would learn to accept. I clearly remember deciding that from now on life was unfolding in a certain way and the only reason I was resisting it was because of a personal preference. I would let go of my preference and let life be in charge. Clearly these were uncharted waters for me. Where would I end up? If my preferences were not leading me, what would happen to me? These questions did not scare me, they fascinated me. I didn't want to be in charge of my life. I wanted to be free to soar far beyond myself. I began to see this as a great experiment. What would happen to me if I just inwardly surrendered my resistance and let the flow of life be in charge? The rules of the experiment were very simple. If life brought events in front of me, I would treat them as if they came to take me beyond myself. If my personal self complained, I would use each opportunity to simply let him go and surrender to what life was presenting me. This was the birth of what I came to call the surrender experiment, and I was totally prepared to see where it would take me. You may think that only a madman would make such a decision, but in truth, I had already experienced some amazing things that the flow of life had done. I had witnessed firsthand what happened when I let go and followed the subtle events that led me to the hills of Mexico, and then to those wonderful experiences with those Mexican villagers. When I got back to the States, I'd been led to my beautiful new property, and look what happened with the house. I just wanted to build a simple hut, and that turned into an unexpectedly rich experience. It was clear to me that I had not done these things, that they had happened to me. In fact, if I had not let go of my initial mental resistance, none of them would have happened or could have happened. I had gone through most of my life thinking I knew what was good for me, but life itself seemed to know better. I was now going to test the presumption of non-randomness to the max. I was willing to roll the dice and let the flow of life be in charge. Chapter Fourteen Life takes charge. Surrendering to the flow of life may have seemed like a bold move, but the truth is I wasn't all that exposed to life's challenges. After all, I was spending most of my days alone on my land in quietude. There was one exception, however. I was officially still in graduate school until I completed my qualifying exams and dissertation. That meant I remained on a fellowship at the university and was responsible for teaching one course a semester in either micro or macro economics. My classes generally met three days a week for an hour. I would do my morning and noon yoga practices, run into town to teach, and then run right back out to the land. I doubt I was a real joy to be around in those days. I was completely unsociable. Unless a student had a question after class, I would do my best not to get into conversations. I always wore the same clothes, jeans and a long-sleeved denim shirt. My hair was pulled back in a ponytail, and I was either in sandals or barefoot. This might not seem extreme for the philosophy department, but these were junior-level courses in a southern business school. The department tolerated me only because I was a very popular teacher, and my students did really well on the departmental exams. I will recount one specific class session that was over the top. My challenge to myself was to see whether I could drive into town, teach the class, and return home while keeping my mind reasonably still. To do that, I had to practice maintaining a meditative state at many points throughout the day. I would do yoga on the field before I left and do some controlled breathing exercises in my van before going to class. I would even pause to quiet my mind while standing in front of the class before I started and completed a lecture. On this particular day, I drove in, did some breathing, and walked into a large lecture hall full of students. For some reason, they started whistling cat calls when I walked in. It took me a moment to come down to earth enough to realize that when i had gotten off the yoga mat out at my place, i had slipped into my jeans but had forgotten to put on a shirt. I was standing there, barefooted, half naked. It didn't disturb me. I just asked the class whether they wanted to cancel today's session or have me go ahead and teach it. The response was unanimous, so I gave the lecture on macro and economics without regard to my attire or lack thereof. Month after month went by while I was adhering to my strict meditation lifestyle. I was supposed to be using my time to prepare for my doctoral qualifying exams. Needless to say, I had not opened a single book, and I had no intention of doing so. I was done with that part of my life, or so I thought. One day, after I finished teaching my economics class, Dr. Goffman met me in the hallway and said that he wanted to talk to me. The voice inside my head immediately told me that now I was in trouble. He was still chairman of the department and for sure he had heard about the no shirt incident. As usual, that voice was wrong. Dr. Goffman proceeded to tell me that he had received a call from the governor's office in Tallahassee. Apparently, the powers that be had decided to build one of Florida's leading community colleges in Gainesville. And to do so, they would need a powerful leader who would not only handle the educational responsibilities, but also be in charge of fundraising and financial management. With that in mind, the committee had selected one of the state's leading bankers to be president of the newly expanded Santa Fe Community College, during the entire time Dr. Goffman was talking, my mind kept saying, why is he telling me this? What has this got to do with me? I could be getting back out to my land. I soon got my answers. It seemed that Florida law required the president of the community college to have a doctoral degree. The, bank, the banker, the committee, had chosen Alan Robertson, who did not have a PhD. So what did they decide to do? help him earn his doctorate by partnering him with a top doctoral student who had a similar academic background. As amazing as it seems, the doctoral student they chose was me. The voice in my head went nuclear. I watched it screaming inside. No, I can't do that. I've dropped out of all of this. I need to devote my time to my practices. There's no way I'm going to start pulling down all my old economics textbooks. I'm done with that. In the midst of all that protest, I remembered my recent commitment to surrender to what life brought before me. That voice was, the voice I was watching was not my spiritual advisor, it was my spiritual burden. This was the perfect opportunity to get it out of the driver's seat. Meanwhile, Dr. Goffman was waiting for a response, but the words of acceptance I was carrying, I was trying to utter, refused to leave my lips. Finally, I heard myself say aloud, Yes, I would be glad to help out. I will tutor him. And in that moment, the die had been cast. This great experiment in surrender had truly begun. I was no longer in charge of my life.